0: Johnny Dangerous, when you were a young man, I know that you were into Taekwondo.
1: What did your sensei name your fists? (laughs) Love and Mercy was a group choice today because Elvis dropped in theaters this weekend. That biopic about a musician led us to go back and take a look at another film from this diverse genre. Movie Matt couldn't be here today, but we have Super Sub Paul and his dulcet tones will surely be music to your ears. That and another Captain's exclusive interview with an ethical mental health professional. Far out, right on, out of sight, uh, smoky tits, bonnaroo, uh, super wicked wiggity, the show starts now.
2: June 19th, 2015 was the wide release. Love and Mercy opened up against Inside Out, so it did not win, but uh, still a big weekend for pictures about mental health. The number one song in the country was uh, See You Again by Wiz Khalifa. Also on more somber note, Dylan Roof, the Charleston church shooter, uh, was arrested on this particular day. And the Supreme Court ruled that states were allowed to decline license plates if they were determined to have offensive content.
1: Well, Fatty, we're ready to rock your roll, man. Give us the box office.
0: (laughs) All right. So Love
1: and Mercy has an
0: 89% tomato meter score and an 85% audience score. Not too bad. It made $28 million worldwide. That's enough to buy the Beach Boys catalog when their dad sold it about five times with inflation included. Oh,
1: man. Rat bastard. That's a good deal. It's over. You're washed up. I'm just thinking about like the box office numbers. Did any of us see this in the theaters?
0: I didn't even know it really existed until... I know I didn't. I think
3: it was because I had a... Small child at the time, so if we went to the theater, it was either to watch. If we got a date night, it was a gonna be a more of a rom com than a yeah than this kind of a movie. But I
1: was aware of it, or maybe a big enough blockbuster where you're just like, well, we just gotta see this in the big screen. Yeah, or we were taking him to see like whatever Finding Dory, maybe. Yeah, I, maybe I don't know. Trying to like what that. year that would have been. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, Johnny Dangerous. I know that there is pain. But you hold on for one more day and tell us, is there anybody new on Team Turkey?
1: Hashtag Team Turkey, gobble, gobble. (laughs) It has been far too long, but thankfully we have a new inductee. (laughs) Does anyone already know who it is?
0: John Cusack?
1: Yes, (laughs) that is correct. Mr. John Cusack. We first saw him in Deep Dive number 15 gross point blank, then not that long ago in number 57 being John Malkovich, and now the trifecta today. Remember, John, to have your people reach out to our people so we can get your commemorative pint glass sent out to you ASAP. I did have one other quick casting note. I wanted to send a shout out to Oklahoma's own Tyson Ritter. Lead vocalist of the alt rock band, the All American Rejects, in a blink and you can miss it appearance as hipster number one.
3: Yeah. I it's funny, I kinda had that written down almost word for word. <laughs> <laughs> but I added Stillwater, Oklahoma. Yeah, so.
1: I, I was trying to be I was trying to be generic for all of our diverse Oklahoma fans. <laughs> Even though our two fans so far, neither of them live in the state. <laughs> True. It is time for the casting couch, but you should know, if you want to continue to listen to him, Matty G is a very, very sick man. <laughs>
3: All right. So Paul Dano and John Cusack were both the first choices of director Bill Pollard. Dano learned to play piano before production started. Um, and in the 80s, Eugene Landy himself tried to get a Brian Wilson movie made with William Hurt as Brian and Richard frickin' Dreyfus as Landy. (laughs) Another biopic was planned in the late 90s, which would have starred Jeff Bridges as Brian Wilson.
1: I have a feeling that first one you mentioned, the story would have been significantly different in uh, Richard Dreyfus probably being a much more sympathetic Landy.
3: (laughs) For anyone who wants to know what that might have been like, you could check out Brian's first autobiography. Which of course was approved. heavily supervised. Yes. <laughs> okay, money. I'm not married anymore. <laughs> Tell us who you think has big performance energy on this movie.
0: BPE. Oh, right. I feel like maybe I have my own category. I think I might have mentioned this previously, not him in particular, but I'm going to go with Jake Abel, who played Mike Love. Yeah. Who was one of the most vocal and critical bandmates, and eventually has the the beard and whatnot. You know who I'm talking about there.
1: Lots yes. of funny hats, too. Lots
0: of hats. Lots of dumb ideas. Too. So he played <laughs> Sam and Dean's long-lost half-brother in Supernatural who gets locked into Lucifer's cage with Lucifer after about two episodes and then goes away for ten seasons and then comes back. Wow. <laughs> so he ends up making it in the final season since he's a half-brother. And they're like, every once in a while they'll be like, kind of feel bad that we you know locked our brother in with lucifer into this cage and anyway so paul there's a world where i can go and tell my secrets to can you talk about the lead actor
2: okay lead actor spotlight is a tough one this week because really you have two lead actors two people playing a role good old johnny cusack an amazing actor a classic being john malkovich high fidelity gross point blank say anything And this uh, 55-year-old gem of an actor just kind of looks like Nicolas Cage in this movie for reasons that no one quite peg. Probably the most fun fact about John Cusack is that he is in 10 movies with Joan Cusack, which is both more and less than you would assume. And then just a couple of little tidbits about Paul Dano. The wide release of this movie took place on his 31st birthday. So happy birthday Paul Dano on that one. And he was in... Uh, An indie band called Mook as the lead singer uh, which contributed to him uh, getting the role in this film as he uh, played a part in the musical recordings. I'm a fan of Paul Dano. He does some crazy shit, but I love it.
1: All right, it is time for the narrative breakdown. Here is your setup summary. This movie shows events from two different points in the life of Brian Wilson. In the 60s, Brian has decided not to tour with the Beach Boys and instead record with studio musicians on the Pet Sounds album. When the band returns, they have some issues with the content, primarily the cousin Mike Love and Brian's father. The stress begins to weigh on the musical prodigy. In the 80s, Brian meets Melinda at a Cadillac dealership and asks her out but quickly expresses concerns about his psychologist, Dr. Eugene Landy. The couple begin to date, but are constantly supervised and interrupted by Landy's thugs. Melinda is very concerned, but unsure of what to do next. Money Chris, I'm worried about you, brother. What was your notable scene?
0: I enjoyed, and it's not really that great of a scene per se, but the airplane scene where he has a panic attack. I feel like the audio on that portion, both does not sound like it's on an airplane, but also really feels like it is on an airplane and the captures, the muffled voices and the drone. Like, I don't feel like it's really an airplane, but at the same time they're able to like my brain thinks I'm on an airplane Mm -hmm. listening to that. So I thought that was a really good scene as well as, You know, you kind of think about back in the day before there were panic attacks. um,
1: (laughs) Recognized, yes. Diagnosed. uh, You know,
0: yeah. Before PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Before PTSD and...
4: um,
3: Pre-DVSM4, whatever it's called. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
0: before they had all those, like, mental illnesses that they (laughs) recognized. I'm doing a bunch of air quotes in here. And also there's a certain amount of helplessness of being on a plane in the first place because you can't really do much yeah Um, although they didn't have locks on the cockpits back then but
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely not an ideal place to to have an event like that especially if it's your first one which is probably more scary because you also have no idea what's happening
0: johnny dangerous what was your notable scene
1: so the one i wanted to discuss is a romantic dinner between brian melinda brian's bodyguard and some other woman (laughs) When he starts telling stories about his father beating him viciously and everyone gets uncomfortable, resulting in the bodyguard and his date leaving the other two left alone, Wilson goes on to tell Miss Ledbetter about how his life spun out of control and she continues to show sympathy for his situation. It was also shot in a very interesting way where they're able to show both actors in single shots with the mirrors lining the booth. Yeah. I found the scene so impactful for two reasons because it's like Brian's sharing information about the abuse he had from his dad. And then also how he feels like he failed his first wife and his daughters, but he, he says it in such a way that it's like very like casual Right. And you can almost see, like, she's reacting to it, like, oh, wow, this is so heavy. And for him, it's it's like he's detached from all of it. And I don't know if that's part of the meds he's on or how hard it's been for him to even, like, He maybe he's had to, like, push that away from him to be um, functional. But it's just, it's a really interesting and strange scene and i i couldn't believe like in watching it i watched it actually a couple of times i I found that the ability to have one of them out of focus in the reflection really helped with the emotional connection in that scene because typically speaking when you have a couple seated at a booth like that across from each other they have to rely on just the the single shot the two shot from across the table basically And uh, it was kind of a a different way of that. I I mean, I'm sure it's maybe not the first time it's been done, but it it stood out to me for that reason.
3: It it did to me as well. Yeah, you either have the two shot or the over the shoulder.
1: Yeah. Right, but no face. You don't get that second face. Right. Which is, yeah.
0: I was kind of curious if they figured that they could do that scene out after they were there or if they scouted that or if it was an, you know, I I can't imagine it being an accident, but having the thought to even make that, that scene is pretty amazing. Even if you, you know, even if you went there and put the mirrors in yourself.
1: Yeah. I got, I mean, I don't know that answer to that, but if I had to guess, I think the cinematographer came up with that idea or the director and was like, build me a booth with these. We should have slid into his DMs and asked him. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's no way that was an accident. I mean, that'd be like, Oh, Hey, this would be kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) Like even getting in that position to know that you could frame their faces perfectly like that. Yeah.
1: Well, and it had to be something where they could change it up because every time they do the over the shoulder shot and you're catching the mirror across that the back of the booth couldn't have been there. So they would have had to switch out the, where those mirrors were and where that wall was each time.
3: Yeah, considering who it was, I'm...
1: No mistakes by that guy. No, (laughs) no. All right, so it's time for the payoff summary. Back in the 60s, Brian has begun to use LSD and is experiencing intense auditory hallucinations. The Beach Boys feel he is becoming unsafe and worry about him. When his father announces that their music rights have all been sold, he completely breaks down and spends the better part of three years in bed. Now in the 80s, Brian explains more about his creative process and the abuse he has experienced as a child. Melinda's suspicions of abusive behavior by Dr. Landy are furthered when Brian's housekeeper expresses concerns as well. Jean forbids the relationship to continue and seems to hold absolute control over the heavily medicated musician. The two women hatch a plot and show the Wilson family proof of the mistreatment and are able to get Brian free, and he proceeds to pursue Melinda once again. Matty G, well, he's a little boy in a man's body. So what's your notable scene, little boy?
3: I should always have you introduce me. So I went with uh, Brian and Melinda go for a swim. Difficult to pick one scene in, uh This scene is important because although they're supervised, Landy himself isn't there this time. Brian shows some spontaneousness and convinces her to jump off the boat and swim to shore. And you get the sense from Melinda's point of view that, you know, she probably thinks that maybe he's progressing. Maybe there's a chance he's, you know, separating himself from Landy. Only for him to freak out after he wakes up that Landy will be there soon and, and that she needed to leave as soon as possible um and of course that's you could see it on her face that's when she knew that as long as landy's in the picture mm-hmm. it will never happen and brian's pretty much a prisoner so
1: yeah it's a very romantic scene and i think it does a really good job of even furthering the back and forth that Brian keeps doing. I mean, he flip-flops with Melinda all the time. Yeah. You know, the very first interaction, he passes a note about being scared, but then when she provides him, oh, well, you don't have to do this. He's like, well, I got to because of this. So, uh, she was in a very tough spot in this movie and she clearly deeply cared about him because I think most people would run from that situation. And they're just like, cause the way, Dr. Landy was, and at least in this movie, it seemed like he might do something to make her life problematic too. Like he was doing some not so veiled threats towards her.
0: Yeah. People with the name Landy are the worst.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Super sub Paul, you're up. What's your choice for
2: scene you want to talk about? Okay. So it's maybe it's a smaller, the scene with um, Melinda in the cafe when she's gone to meet with Gloria because she leads in talking about how she understands that maybe she's never going, knowing that he's still under this thumb. She's going to do anything she can to to help make sure he gets out. And so these two women who are both uh, being controlled by Landy to to some degree, one just through the hold that he has on um, Brian and the other, through, you know, he's threatening our immigration status. You know, he's evil that then it's the two of them who bring him down ultimately in the end with almost like it's this little altruistic moment. And that that builds up to the, the lead into that big sort of showdown at the dealership where you really see kind of like what Landy's made of which turns out to not be that much. It's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. this This isn't about me you know trying to find my happily ever after this is about me seeing that this man that i care about is deeply deeply manipulated and terrified and not not living his life he's a slave to this insane person and his family doesn't know it no one understands the degree and we can't leave him like that you know
1: today in our expert interview we are joined by an ethical mental health professional, Money Christie, Thanks for being with us today.
5: Thanks for having me back.
1: (laughs) Well, to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your experience in the field, your education, anything like that?
5: Um, I've been working in the mental health industry for 17 years now. Started working at Community Mental Health Center uh, as a case manager. Then I went back to school, worked on my master's degree And I've been a licensed professional counselor for 10 years now. Congratulations. Thanks.
1: (laughs) So in this movie, we got Dr. Landy. He doesn't have the exact same credential as you, but he works in a similar related field. And he is pretty clearly the bad guy in the movie. Yeah. He's the antagonist. Based on your viewing of this movie, or what you've read about or know about him as a practitioner. What did you think about his methods, his approach? And was there any benefit to what he was doing with Brian? Or was it all bad news?
5: It definitely seemed like all bad news. <laughs> okay. I was a little disappointed in the film because it really focused more on like Brian and his journey and his struggles. And I really wanted to see more of like how Dr. Landy manipulated him and got him to that point because um, this film is very similar to the podcast and then they uh, reimagined or the dramatization of The Shrink Next Door. Mm-hmm. That show was very uncomfortable to watch because you really saw the behavior of that therapist and how unethical and just slimy and gross it was. Um, but I think Paul Giamatti, Giamatti did a fantastic job of playing a bag therapist he just really encapsulated like how bad that guy was yeah i really enjoyed the scenes where he lost his temper and was screaming at his patient because that just doesn't seem helpful at all yeah so
0: yeah i don't know why you do
1: that (laughs) (laughs) i don't think you're her patient (laughs) (laughs) If there are, we might have to take off that ethical part at the beginning of my. <laughs> he has not been intro. responsive
5: to my therapeutic methods of your put, techniques. Putting the dishes in the dishwasher. Even
1: the even the twenty four hour program you have him on.
5: The twenty four hour program. I mean, there are some some therapeutic techniques where you challenge your your clients, mm-hmm. um, and you say things that probably piss them off, or maybe aren't super appropriate, but they need that little nudge, but. There's no any, any reason to scream at your patient like that. And like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to your, your client's home. You wouldn't spend all your time with them. It just Mm. seems very, very, very unhealthy.
1: Uh, So you're not acting as a legal guardian for any of your clients, (laughs) sir.
5: Oh my goodness. (laughs) I have a real fun story about that. Uh, One of my former clients contacted me before he was to have surgery and he had no other friends or family and they wouldn't do surgery without an emergency contact so he called me like from the hospital and he said i've listed you as my emergency contact and i said oh you can't you know you can't do that like that's not appropriate i can't do anything for you in that capacity and he goes no it's fine if i die on the table they'll call you and let you know and then he hung up on me <laughs> <laughs>
3: wow can't do much nope. about he that. Can't do anything about that He just wanted to let you know why he might
1: not be at the next session.
5: <laughs> that was exactly his intent on that.
1: <laughs> Dr. Landy repeatedly stated that Brian was a paranoid schizophrenic. However, the movie's postscript said that his diagnosis was changed. How could having a different diagnosis change the outcomes of treatment, and with the limited information provided, we understand you were not there to conduct a clinical interview with him. What would you guess Brian's corrected diagnosis might have been?
5: I would say like the best part about like having a correct diagnosis is then you have the right treatment because different different conditions require different treatments. So it's like working on a car. If mm. you if you say it's the battery and it's not the battery, it's the fuel injector <laughs> right? and you place the battery, it's still not going to work. Yeah. So I definitely disagreed with the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. I think that that is a phrase that Dr. Landy used because it ha- it evokes such emotion and such connotations of like being very ill, that that was something that he used to kind of weaponize his diagnosis and kind of further inject himself into the situation and create that narrative that, that Brian was very ill and needed his help. Yeah, But there's a lot of different diagnoses that he could have potentially well, and, of course, you know, we're not conducting an assessment, sure. but just, you know, he reported he heard voices. Well, that is a criteria of schizophrenia, but it, it's also a criteria of several different kind of mood disorders.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: One thing that we did that didn't get explored much in the film was that Brian had a lot of tr- like abuse growing up. So there's some trauma. So you would probably want to explore a PTSD diagnosis and mm-hmm. conduct a thorough like trauma screening.
0: PTSD didn't exist back then. We, already, we covered this in the, in the podcast. That before PTSD existed and panic attacks yeah, he said
1: he said at one point that panic attacks hadn't been invented yet.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it was called hysteria, and yeah, that's only yeah. what women had.
1: Yeah, lady problems. Mrs. Dangerous commented like, I feel like we're glossing over the fact that he was using LSD and other psychotropic medications and maybe that was influencing either the frequency or the magnitude of these hallucinations. Yeah. Or, you know, you know, kind of eliminating some drug use issues.
5: Yeah, that was definitely a good point, is the substance use can compound any kind of other mental health issues going on. And I, I thought the most um shocking scene was when the the um like maid was like look at all these pills, like a jar yeah, yeah. of pills that looked like candy. And it's like, <laughs> you don't, pills. none of them are labeled. You don't know what, they're all different colors and shapes. Like how many pills has he been giving this guy? Yeah. Then yeah. that, that can create a lot of problems.
0: She sold that jar and retired by the way. <laughs> they didn't mention that in the,
5: the article I read um, about like what, what really happened was one of the um, concerns from somebody else that met Brian was, he said he it was another psychiatrist who said when he met Brian, he looked like he was having symptoms of tardive dyskinesia. Is that the... Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Tardative dyskinesia. That's it.
5: I can't pronounce it correctly, but (laughs) I know what it is. Yes. And like that's a side effect from psychotropic medications. And they're really dangerous medications if they're not used properly. Correct.
1: And the field has come a long way since the 70s and 80s when he was taking a lot of these meds that now they just don't use. Yes. (laughs) Because they realized... The side effects were worse
0: this than is meth the and, treatment. This is
1: meth, crack, and LSD. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and we just gave it to you because that's what was good for you. Yeah, this this pills. film
5: definitely made me grateful for how far we've come in the science of what we do and that there's yeah. research to back it up. And like uh, like, like Dr. Landy's method of like 24-hour like Melu treatment. Like, no, I, I don't see any research that says this is helpful.
1: Yeah, but, You had to have some people... Act as guinea pigs, unfortunately. Yeah. To figure out did and didn't work. All right, Christy, last question. What are some of your best or most favored examples of a therapist, psychologist, or other clinician from film,
5: film, or TV? Sure. I can't recall any therapist in a film other than, I guess, this one. And it's because I just recently watched it. (laughs) Um, But when I think about like a healthy, good portrayal, or a more realistic portrayal of a therapist, I think about the um, the doctor from Sopranos, Tony Soprano's therapist. Oh yeah,
1: that's um, a good one.
5: Like she wasn't the best; she had some struggles. But I think she, that models like a what a realistic therapeutic relationship is, because she demonstrated like some healthy boundaries with Tony. You could tell that there were definitely some things that he was revealing in sessions that she was uncomfortable with as a person, but she, was, she would put that aside mm-hmm. to, like, focus on his issues. So I think that's a, a nice, realistic perspective of a clinician. Okay. Uh, but also my favorite portrayal of counseling in, mm-hmm. like, a TV film or whatever is... When Toby finally gets to do counseling with Michael Scott, <laughs> and he has that incredible reflection where he says, "It's important for you to be liked." <laughs> it's it, It's like Toby finally got his moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, it backfired. But
1: <laughs> is that when uh, Michael's doing his exit interview? Or something that's like when that?
5: Michael is required to do like ten hours of counseling with his hr representative which is all that's not accurate at all you would not do it with your (laughs) hr representative um but michael's resistant to counseling and he finally just says toby's like well let's just play a game and they're playing like connect four and they're coloring like you would do you know in child (laughs) psychology yeah yeah because michael is just a child (laughs) Child. oh but that's my favorite scene that's a good one
0: who do you think you are? <laughs> Is that, isn't that what he says?
1: That's in the exit interview. Yes, <laughs> but he has to read yeah. it like positively because he thinks he's gonna one on one. All right. Well, thanks so much for uh, being on with us, Christy. Thanks for and, having me, uh, providing us with some insight.
5: <laughs> thanks for uh forcing me to watch that film i was actually i did not know what the the plot was until yeah. you sent it and i was like oh i do kind of want to watch this
1: yeah. one of those movies that i feel like a lot of people didn't really know about or necessarily get a lot of press about it and when you, when you go and if you have any interest in either the beach boys or you have any interest in psychology i think it definitely is a strong uh, portrayal or interesting portrayal of both of those features. So, All right. Uh, thanks again to money Christie for that excellent interview. We'll be right back after a short break.
3: All right. Welcome back to our deep dive of love and mercy. We're going to go into the captain's catechism where I get to ask a fun trivia question
0: my answer is 17
3: (laughs) i hope he's right it's not far off how many pounds did paul dano gain to play brian wilson so it's close to 17 kind
0: of that was misleading to throw him off
1: i'm going to go with 32
0: 37
3: i forget are we are we doing um Prices right. Price is right. So rules. it's somewhere
0: between thirty two and thirty seven. <laughs>
3: yeah. It was thirty five. So
0: they just made thirty five up because it was <laughs> in increments of five. It was either thirty two <laughs> or thirty seven. We have
1: we have once again like like really split that really close. <laughs> the yes. answer is whatever is about halfway between what we think is is correct. Usually,
3: he blames that added weight, claims that it contributed to tearing ligaments in his knee while playing basketball with the weight on. I'll do that, and I have another one, but it's just trivia. It's not a question. Um, Seventeen. So, <laughs> <laughs> Brian's dad Murray interrupts a recording session to play a song by the new group he's managing, claiming it will be a number one song. However, the Sunrays "I Live for the Suns" highest position in the Billboard Top 100 was number fifty-one.
0: It's still, I mean, pretty impressive, considering. I mean, you get at least one point for releasing a song, right?
3: Well, <laughs> <laughs> Dangeroso, I want you to leave,
1: but I don't want you to leave me. <laughs> but first, tell us who's in the director's chair. Bill Polad directed today's feature. He has primarily been a producer during his Hollywood career and only... Prior directing was on Old Explorers back in 1990 and now 25 years later, Love and Mercy. He had a humble American background as the son of billionaire Carl Polette, <laughs> whose family still owns the Minnesota Twins franchise. He worked in the family finance firm until deciding to pursue his interest in films for the past 30 years with his production company called River Road Films. He has been a producer on award-winning films like Brokeback Mountain, Into the Wild, Food Inc., and 12 Years a Slave. This is his third time producing in the deep dive (laughs) (laughs) after Wild and then The Tree of Life. His most recent project was the 2020 concert film American Utopia, the David Byrne live concert. Which is, I believe, still on HBO Max and recommended. Oh well, let me speak to our music expert. Is it recommended? It is. All right. And it is still on HBO Max. <laughs> what do you guys think of the director? Does this fulfill your will for Bill? <laughs> God.
3: So I hadn't even heard of his first movie, but as we will soon find out, I I like this movie yeah. very much. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's all right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, for any of us other than money, Chris, it's really hard to conceive of this kind of ability to do whatever you want, because that's clearly the case with him. And I don't want to belittle this experience, because I think he did a pretty admirable job. I don't know that he's a great director by any means. It doesn't necessarily sound like he's even that passionate about it, but I think he just knew the business well enough and probably worked with and been around. I mean, if you look at the films he had produced and those films we've talked about, he had watched great directors work over and over and over again, enough to, you know, fake it till you make it, I guess, if if nothing else. And it doesn't seem like he, that's his aspiration because he's gone back to producing again. So right. I wouldn't say it's impossible that he'll do it again, but he probably will just stay a producer. In an, in another twenty five years, yeah, maybe maybe it'll <laughs> be another story. He um, definitely definitely shows how much he cared about this particular story in putting it together, and that's probably what was necessary to to have this this quality come from.
3: I agree, and I think that he, his experience in being a producer gave him the wherewithal to be. If you're a good producer, you know how to surround yourself with people that will. Maybe make any shortcomings you have null and void because of how good they are at their job. And he hired the right people. Yeah,
1: I feel like that might come up in some future segments. Yeah. <laughs> in deciding who to shoot the film, edit the film, put, compose music, you know, all those kinds of things, is he had the connections. And like you said, I mean, it, this is a director. One of their greatest roles is one of their greatest jobs is to uh, delegate. And he did that well. All right. Money Chris is the greatest living comparer of movies, and you have never heard of him, have you? That's the secret of this podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but keep it as secret as possible.
1: as few listeners, because
0: we are conscientious about the environment, and we do not want all those, the energy from all the bits of everyone downloading and listening to our podcast.
1: Don't tell your friends.
0: All right, so the similar movies. So I could only really kind of come up with two. Well, I could have done three. I mean, it's there's some easy ones if you want to just do music, but I think Walk the Line is my biggest similar, where you've got a musician with some issues, although they're different issues, kind of going through their life a little bit. I thought Rocket Man covers a small section of Elton John's youth and struggles as a young man, so it kind of, goes between adult and child, not quite the same. Right. You know, two time frames like this movie does. And I'm not going to even mention the third one just okay. because I don't feel like not strong enough. Like I connection. don't feel like this I feel like this is such a unique music musical movie where you have to have two different time frames kind of and some struggles and you know most things are very linear and it's only about drugs for the most part. So I'm hoping that one of you – I know that there's a lot of movies that probably are similar that I haven't watched, so I didn't pick those either to just
1: not be, you know. I think that's fair to stick to what you have done. I have one talking to Mrs. Dangerous about it. We kept referencing this miniseries, The Shrink Next Door, because – that. and if you guys haven't seen it, that's the – based on a true story, based on a true podcast a uh, story of uh, a New York was he like drapery <laughs> magnet and his relationship with his psychiatrist who so slowly siphoned what was something like three million dollars from him and over the process of like a thirty year relationship took and over it, his house, <laughs> yeah, and it just had a very similar feeling to where you could see maybe the start with some good intentions and helping him with problems, but slowly. Taking over bigger and bigger portions of his life and having this exorbitant financial control and an abusive relationship. I
0: did think about that one, um, but it was a miniseries. But it is probably one of the closest from that standpoint. I can't think of really any many other situations in movies and you know TV that are kind of like that. I, I know that Maddie G didn't pick that one.
3: Nope. nope. You're right. But yeah, it is crazy because. You know, as far as financial stuff goes, as you know, it mentions in the film uh, he redid Brian's will to basically leave everything to him. Yep. And not only that, but like I'm, uh, his Brian's auto first autobiography was mentioned before, and you know he made plenty of money off of that. And Brian's, I believe, self-titled album features all the songs co-written by Landy. "Quote unquote,"
0: yeah, fucking Landy. Yeah, people with Landy have the fucking <laughs> worst.
3: <laughs> but as far as uh, bringing another example, um, it's it's more than two uh, actors. But I I thought of the the Dylan movie. I'm not there, but it, it has, which is written by the same by guy. The same guy, yeah. Uh,
1: so it really, yeah. I think the connection is definitely there. Yeah, it's a
3: good one too. But they. Like I said, uh, they had like, what, five or six instead of just two? Something Mm -hmm. like that. But that was kind of cool because then they they got to do all the different Dylan eras.
1: It's not a very highly used um, technique, and people are critical of it a lot of times. But I kind of like that. I do too. It's different. Seeing what the different people bring to the role. Yeah. I thought it worked here, and I think it worked in that other one too. So Hollywood, don't be afraid to do that again. Yeah. As I know you're listening. Yeah.
0: It'd be really, <laughs> really cool if they filed at the end, though.
1: <laughs> they don't share a strong uh, similarity. They don't look related. Dan Owen, Cusack. Right. And I think that's okay. I do, too. Even though
3: I think it gets thrown on Cusack a little too much, but at that time... Brian had lost a lot of weight in his face. And so his face does resemble Cusack more than most people might think if you look at pictures from that era. But as far as looking like him, yeah, no.
1: Well, and there's a difference between, yeah, I think it was better if you were comparing a photo of each actor in the part with the part they were playing versus each other, the two, the differences between them are the differences between them and the character, but they both kind of, with, and of course, makeup and hair does a huge part of it, you know, match somebody's hair and skin tone, and they kind of look a little like them. So, yeah. All
0: right, Paul, why do you lock yourself up in these chains? Tell us about production
2: design. <laughs> There's some interesting things about this production. The, um, originally the studio was pushing for the film to be shot in Louisiana on digital for, uh, tax. Kickbacks and various uh, financial reasons, but the director pushed uh, back both to have traditional film shit you can. you want you want the grain, you want the real film. And it's the Beach Boys. And how are you you're in Southern California? How can you not shoot a movie very much about the Beach Boys outside of Southern California? That's just total nonsense. And so the, the 60s were, were staged and shot with very sort of warm colors, uh, all the sort of modern uh, furniture of the time uh, was in very sort of like warm wood tones, everything sort of meant to make it look not fairytale, but it is very romanticized version of the 60s. Whereas when you got to the 80s, especially in Wilson's house, everything is white, everything is stark, everything is clean line. And the the beauty of the, the studio scenes is that they were completely unscripted. Dano had extensively listened to the Pet Sounds recordings, and they just kind of let him roll with it because he understood music from the, the angle of the musician. And he, uh, it's literally all of those things are sort of off the cuff directions that he's giving them and trying to, the way that a studio session would really play out. He actually remembered the line from the recordings. You think we can get a horse in here? which is actually something that Brian Wilson said, which it was an idea he had for the album cover, was that he wanted to get a horse in there, both to get the sounds in, but then he wanted to take a picture of the horse in there with the orchestra setup as the cover for the album, which did not ultimately go very well. And the vocal vocal tracks are actually a blend of Dano and the original Brian Wilson. Um, Sometimes it's his, sometimes it's purely one or the other, and sometimes it is literally one being blended into the other. And then also um, during production, there was very, and what have you, they made a point to keep Dano and Cusack totally separated. And they made sure that they had no interaction during the, during developing the roles, any of that, so that they could make sure that they each came with their own idea about who Wilson was, because in effect, though they're playing the same man, they're playing two very different characters and they wanted them to be able to bring fresh perspectives to the role. Yeah, other than that, the meat and potatoes, it was shot in 35 days in California at various locations. That is the production design.
1: I have one other quick production design note. I am so happy to report that the season of the Black Lincoln continues (laughs) with the appearance of a 1984 town car stretched limousine. Obviously, it was the other luxury American automaker that had a much bigger plot connection. The most notable being a nineteen ninety-three Cadillac Alante, that convertible that nearly hit and killed Brian, driven by Melinda at the end.
0: And I'll again mention there are no more Lincoln sedans. It's only SUVs. It's crazy. Like every it's like, oh look, it's the Lincoln and there's no no one thinks, oh, you mean the Lincoln SUV? No. I mean, everybody knows has a picture in your mind and that is no longer where they're at. is kind of crazy.
1: I love your music and sound segment, Maddie G. I grew up on it. So thank you.
3: <laughs> okay. So yes, we will be discussing the music. Original music for the film was written by Atticus Ross, who you may know usually works with the great Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails on film scores. Yes. However, this is the first and so far only time he has worked without a co-writer. He has won two Academy Awards for Best Original Score with Resner for his work on the social media in 2011 and last year for Soul. I liked how Atticus Ross approached the soundtrack. He knew he didn't want to do a traditional score that would be like a fan's tribute to Brian Wilson. And as the director mentions in an interview I read, you don't want to compete with Brian Wilson. <laughs> But Atticus had access to the stems or the individual tracks of the entire Beach Boys catalog. So he came up with the idea of doing sound collages where he would create music where samples of the vocals and instrumentation from Beach Boys songs could be digitally retuned to create new melodies. I think this is used with great effect and, as we mentioned before, uh, the auditory hallucinations. Um, The soundtrack was obviously mostly Beach Boys songs. However, there were some other artists featured in the movie, but not on the soundtrack proper. Some of them included the Moody Blues, The Four Freshmen, Martha and the Vandellas, and The Yardbirds. Here's the part where I talk about Tyson Ritter. (laughs) All right, in the sound department, re-recording mixer Chris Jenkins has a long and productive career. He has three Academy Awards and two other nominations. The wins were in Best Sound for Out of Africa in 1986, and again in 1993 for Last of the Mohicans. He was also nominated for Best Sound for Dick Tracy in 91. (laughs) After more than a decade, he was again nominated for Sound Mixing for Wanted in 2009, and most recently won for Sound Mixing for Mad Max Fury Road in 2015. Also, sound designer and re-recording mixer Eugene but a good Eugene this time. (laughs) Eugene Garrity was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sound in in 2003 for Deep Dive alum Gangs of New York and in 2013 for Life of Pi. And he would win his lone Academy Award in 2012 for Hugo.
1: I was really impressed with those, whatever you want to call it, kind of the meltdown, hallucination type scenes, uh, especially the... The last one, which is kind of like a montage of him being in bed and hearing the voices of the different people, positive and negative, Yeah. for two reasons. One is from what I've heard from people who have talked about experiencing those types of hallucinations, it was very accurate in that it was like little bits of this and little bits of that and overlapping and jumbled and important things and overall being negative or critical of you know, the person and i was blown away i was watching the blu-ray which didn't have an atmos mix but i think i had it up mixed to where some of it was coming overhead but just the surround and to the different speakers i was like it sounded really disorienting yet cool and i was just thinking like whoever mixed this i was like they they nailed it that was the blew me away i uh did you watch it up here
0: I watched it, but it was HBO Max. So I didn't. I don't know that I had the oh, okay. The same experience on the audio mix. One thing that does that I do not like, and I'm curious if you write any of this down. Um, the the concept of disembodied voices. Mm. The the disembodied part just kind of freaks me out. Comparatively to just being like, I'm hearing voices of things that aren't there. That's cool, but when it's disembodied voices, it's like kind of creepy. I don't know. <laughs>
1: creepy in a like creepy just sounds like you're saying like it's not right or creepy and like he would be creeped out by what's happening to him the whole
0: cons just the word disembodied it's like a it's like a it's it doesn't mean anything necessarily like creepy per se but it just seems like it's it's a it's not a good thing you prefer like out of
1: body yeah like
0: versus disembodied (laughs) Matty G would you like to be disembodied (laughs) no not at all and I'm sure Johnny Dangerous would also not, not like to be disembodied.
1: <laughs> well, if you really think about it, this podcast is our voices going out i i we are i know but it sounds they're driving in their car to our disembodied
0: voices sounds creepy (laughs) when you say that you when you're you're listening to our disembodied voices right now it seems creepy (laughs) and that explains your your the last the last few words the last few words of your dating profile as well (laughs)
4: love
0: and mercy oh wait
4: (laughs)
1: wrong
0: one that's a safe... What's your safe word? <laughs> <laughs> should ask you what your safe word was, Devin Marche.
3: Johnny Dangerous, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I closed my eyes. Didn't see a thing. I don't know. Maybe it could be something with the right cinematography.
1: <laughs> That's a good one. Once again, we viewed the work of legendary cinematographer Robert Yeoman. Well, the fans have been clamoring for more sound effects, so once again... Gobble, gobble, bitches. (laughs) This is his third time on the show, which I believe is our first cinematographer to earn that honor after his appearances on Dogma and the Royal Tenenbaums. He and Wes Anderson have completed eight films together and are done with principal photography on the ninth Asteroid City, release date TBD. He was nominated for Independent Spirit Awards for Drugstore Cowboy and Moonrise Kingdom as well as an Oscar for the Grand Budapest Hotel. On Love and Mercy, Yeoman was very specific about the look. He required the 1960s recording sessions to be shot on Super 16 and in a documentary style, with the cameras not having any set shots, but rather trying to capture the performances as they happened live. So the actors would rehearse and practice, do everything, and then he would show up (laughs) and his cameramen, and they would just do it like a documentary. My favorite shot, once again, this great DP gives many choices, but I'll go with symbolic shot from behind with the two leads standing in the street with the freeway in the spot where Brian's childhood home was with a simple road sign between them that says end (laughs) right before the end credits. What did you guys think? Did you have any thoughts about cinematography?
3: As per usual, the guy's good. <laughs> um, yeah, you mentioned uh, guerrilla documentary and style, uh, documentary style that they did in the studios. I was a big fan of that. I really liked how uh, during one of the scenes when he's talking to uh, Carol Kay, the bass player, like he got down on their level too. I like that. My two favorite shots. I really liked after they went for their swim and they were laying down in that it wasn't really a bed but it wasn't really a couch yeah, but it count. was right there futon, by the not futon what do you call <laughs> it's it like a
1: sectional type
3: right they were laying down on that with the the ocean behind them that was nice and then i also liked uh after brian took lsd and he was laying on the in the uh grass and the uh the flowers, flowers around blooming. him bloomed yeah, yeah i like those two sh- those two shots for my favorite
0: i i still i just like the the dinner scene with the mirrors in the booths I was just like oh man that is so that's such a great shot and yeah, yeah. it's whenever you notice things like that um it's pretty special I'm sure that at some point they like don't want you to notice maybe I don't know but when something's awesome like that then it's uh I think it's a good sign the, the crazy thing is is that none of us were alive when any of this happened yeah. none of our listeners are alive when any of this happened I can tell you that much right now <laughs> so it really does. But at the same time, we know that it existed in those, you know, that we've seen things. Yeah. Um, well, these
1: people are in our advanced age have. Okay. One more time, please.
2: <laughs> Captain's critical corner.
0: <laughs> I, I feel like on this movie, they really underutilized Dano's singing. And I feel like he did say, I mean, he was a good singer. So it worked out. But I almost feel like they almost could have just removed that whole, the whole concept of him singing as well, and it wouldn't have made much of a difference to the storyline. So I feel like they could have expanded on that and had more of him singing because he I thought he did a great job.
1: Okay.
3: I agree. I think he did a really good job. Um, I think it probably depended on the song because I don't know that his register is exactly what Brian's was. That would make sense. But some of it was him by himself, and then some of it would be blended right, with him and Brian's voice. And then I, I would assume the parts that he just could not hit would be
0: just straight, straight up Brian. Yeah, Ma- yeah maybe I only like the parts that they were blended voice. But I could kind of, so there was parts where I was like, that that's actually him singing. And yeah, yeah I, had, I read, you know, it was like, you know, he had to, sing in front of brian in order to be able to get the
1: part and things like that and uh plus the hand jobs. but <laughs> i didn't read that the one scene where i think it was exclusively him and had to be was when he plays for his dad yeah which is what song is that god only knows yeah that didn't sound like there was anything mixed over the top no yeah that, that in, any way to hide him, him. so if that scene probably would have been cut or changed if he was not able to.
0: Which I only think about Big Love every time I hear that song, now.
1: All right, what's your hot throwdown? Tell us why this movie sucks. No,
0: it doesn't suck.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, as a geek-level Beach Boys fan, this bothered me. Okay, so after Pet Sounds is released and – the band is in the tent inside the house mm-hmm. and Mike Love starts talking trash about how pet sounds flopped. And then Brian gets up and goes to the piano and starts playing what ends up being good vibrations. They had already recorded that song at that point. That was part <laughs> of the pet sound sessions. Right. They just, he just didn't have it completed all the okay. way because it was recorded in sections. Um, It wasn't edited together. So that's why it came out after it wasn't. Oh, I, you made me sad, Mike Love. Yeah. I'm going to go write a new song that's better, <laughs> that you like. But yeah, so that that kind of annoyed me. But I see how that, I mean, it's they're just trying to push the story along. I get it, but just a little nitpicks.
1: All right. So mine is, in reading about Dr. Landy, I found a few things to be contradictory in the movie's portrayal. For instance, it was three years after they started dating that he stepped in and forbade the relationship, and I feel like they kind of squished that timeline down a lot. Maybe that was three years, but it didn't feel like three years gone by. Right. And then another one was that several family members, the Wilson family, brothers, cousin, whatever, and Brian's daughter, at least one of his daughters, commented years later that Dr. Landy was too expensive and made some poor ethical decisions and was, you know, it was difficult to work with, but that he had saved Brian's life. And when he died in 2006, the doctor, they were very upset by it and saddened by it, you know? So it, it felt like, I mean, you have to have, a strong villain and i don't think there was the time to make him as quite as complex as he probably was
3: yeah you could just do late 80s early 90s brian wilson movie all to itself yeah because it's a
1: and there were two whole different areas like he treated him for years and then they it's... fired him whatever he stepped away and then they brought him back yeah <laughs> and yeah. then the second time it was and it didn't end up you know losing his license and stuff and he did wrong stuff no doubt i'm not saying that i'm just saying it was there was much more of like he did some stuff that really helped and saved brian too yeah and you couldn't spend quite as much time on that yeah. for the purpose of the movie
3: yeah you're you're totally right he did it in the beginning was good and over the long haul uh, obviously gave brian a lot of guidance to turn his life around but then then it went souring
1: his theory of psychology comes from the gestalt practice and it, and this 24-hour watching which is kind of it's changed over time and now that would be more like a behavioral health team that would be managing a person and it was probably just a quest for power and he liked the money and all these things like it yeah. it's a that sort of and influence status. is very attractive and he obviously went to the dark side following it but all the other things that they had tried with Brian, and there was a lot, mm-hmm. did not work. Yeah. So they had to do something radical. So they got somebody radical, and then he ended up being too radical. So, yeah. Radical, bro. Yeah, exactly.
3: Piggybacking off of what you mentioned about uh, some of the story around Landy not being, you know, as accurate as it could have been, same thing with Melinda at the end. And while she does deserve a lot of credit for helping Brian as well. Um, She was not the one to persuade Carl to take legal action against Landy, whereas in that they make it look like her and Gloria. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure Gloria did do something, too, but it wasn't as portrayed or it wasn't as it was portrayed in the film. I just had just a general one. What a shitty manager Melinda worked for at the dealership. (laughs) Just letting these goons come into the dealership multiple <laughs> times to harass her, and You do absolutely nothing until they're gone and then you just kind of come up and be like,
1: are you okay? Yep, you okay? It's
0: the way it was back in the, back in the 80s, guys. Hashtag believe women. <laughs> now it's time for the conclusions. As always, we start with the lowest rating first and that this time will be m- me. So...
3: You're way excited about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not for sure it was going to be.
0: <laughs> I thought it was a okay movie. I really wasn't excited to watch it. After listening to some other people talk about it and some of the reviews, I was I got kind of excited thinking it was going to surprise me. It really didn't for the most part. It seemed slow, but also didn't really give me a lot of information. Like I, I also felt like things were missing at the same time. I don't feel like I ever really understood everything that adult Brian was going through. I feel like that was all glossed over. And I thought that was also kind of the, the whole point, the interesting part of the story, so to speak. And the reason why they're, the reason why we're even telling this for the most part is because of what happened to him as an adult. It wasn't because he was a beach boy. There were several of them, you know, it was the exceptional part of his story is, is, you know, Landy, people those people are the worst those landies. so i i just felt like something was missing i you know there was some good cinematography and to quote some governors it could have been worse (laughs) (laughs) i will say that um so you get the point just for just for making the movie so i'm gonna give it a 3.25 captains okay All right, that brings us to the next up, and that is
1: going to be Johnny Dangerous. All right. My first experience with this movie was once again a Netflix disc rental in late 2015 or early 2016. I enjoyed it more than expected and was excited to give it a second watch when we selected it as our music biopic. I recently bought my own copy of the Blu-ray, and that is what I watched for the review. In regards to the Beach Boys and their music, my journey had been unusual. I remember in the late eighties when Kokomo became their first hit in years. And at the time I really didn't I didn't really know any of their music and I wasn't really a fan of that song.
3: I would just like to note that Brian Wilson had no part in Kokomo.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> it makes sense so then slowly over the years i heard more of their early surf inspired stuff which was okay but never my jam it wasn't until years later that i started hearing the songs that were featured in this movie on various other soundtracks that i really grew to appreciate the genius that is brian wilson (laughs) as for my review of the movie it is a well-crafted film that i enjoyed watching and found myself fascinated by the source material leading me to further research the lives of the characters. The decision to have Dano and Cusack play the characters at different points was controversial, but ultimately worked. I rewatched all the studio scenes multiple times and could do so regularly as it is the most entertaining part of the movie. My favorite story feature is that Elizabeth Banks and Diana Maria Rivas characters taking risks and making sacrifices to improve the situation there were probably some shortcuts taken to deliver a more palatable telling of his life but love and mercy still earns three and a half dogs barking into a microphone
0: all right next up we have maddie g
3: all right well my experience with the movie, I, I also either rented it from Netflix or Redbox. can't remember. But it, it it being chosen gave me a good reason to finally purchase this, which I did. And I do I do believe this was a personal present to me as it was original. <laughs> the limited release was on my birthday. I think it's no surprise to anyone that I'm a big fan of this film. And while no biopic is 100% accurate, this movie gets a lot of it right. Uh, and the attention to detail is top-notch, especially when it comes to the recording sessions in the, uh, in the studio and stuff like that. That is due to, of course, uh, close personal friends and Beach Boys and Brian Wilson historians working on the film itself. And it shows because there's lots of little nods to the fans here and there. Um, I really like how much like the Dylan movie, I'm Not There, they use two different actors for the different points in Brian's life. The main actors are all great, especially Paul Dano, who may not deserve the Academy Award uh, for Best Supporting Actor that year, but I think he should have at least got a nomination. Yeoman does a great job with the cinematography again, as he always does. Um, The score is fantastic as well. So, as mentioned, big fan. Grew up with the music. My parents played the early stuff. I bought Pet Sounds in high school but didn't really listen to it until I got in college and then once I did it kind of became an obsession of mine i can remember reading about the aborted follow up smile and this and scouring the internet to find different websites to download bootleg songs from the from the sessions i still have them on a hard drive too by the way <laughs> i have multiple albums by the band multiple versions of pet sounds the sessions box set, the Smile sessions box set, documentaries, books, all kinds of stuff. Underwear, not quite underwear. I don't, I don't know if they ever made any. Find some, send it to me. <laughs> Money. It's
0: the Brian Wilson Commando.
3: <laughs> so, and one of the best concert experiences was seeing Brian several years ago during his tour for the Pet Sounds fiftieth anniversary uh, at the then Brady Theater. If this movie intrigued you, and you want more maybe fill out some of the uh the parts you may not know about there's a couple of good documentaries i recommend a uh, beautiful dreamer which is mainly about the uh, the follow up to pet sounds and how it petered out and didn't and wasn't completed for many many years and then last year there was one uh, specifically just on Brian Wilson called long promised road which by the time this pod is released was recently released as part of the PBS American master series. So you can watch it for free on the PBS app. So this movie for me is one of my favorite. And I think one of the best musical biopics 4.25 pianos in a sandbox.
0: (laughs) Very nice. All right. Movie Matt, what did you think?
4: All right. So I didn't really know what to expect with this film. Um, honestly, i would never really even heard of it before. But, uh, man, what a film. Probably one of my most liked films of the season. You know, I thought it was going to be just, like, super musical, but it had, you know, kind of the cult. Like, I mean, it could be a film about an entrepreneur. It could be a film about anyone following their passion or what they truly believe in or love and I think it did an excellent job of executing on that so the acting was absolutely superb I thought uh Elizabeth Banks uh John Cusack I even though you know Paul Giamatti was kind of the you know the evil was the evil guy here but uh you could almost see the underpinnings of what he did, what he does in billions in his uh, performance here. Um, great movie overall. I was absolutely blown away. I think everyone should watch it. I'm going to give this one 4.25 captains.
0: Well, that's a high for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Super sub Paul. What'd you think?
2: More than just a biopic, Love and Mercy analyzes two periods in the life of a genius, juxtaposing them to ask questions about the nature of genius and madness, the loss of control of oneself and one's art, the fear of losing inspiration on the road to wellness, the crushing weight of success, and at the end of it, a longing for peace and fulfillment. All of this set against the backdrop of one of the greatest pop music masterpieces ever made, I give love and mercy 4.75 captains.
1: Woo-hoo! Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing rating. <laughs>
2: I love this movie. <laughs> yeah. The first time I saw it, it was like, I found out about it ahead of time. I had mentioned it to my father-in-law. They came up for that weekend coincidentally. And we went and saw it at circle, like on the opening night and we're like, us and four
1: other people were like, this is awesome. That's great.
0: All right. That brings us to a total of four captains. Four on the dot. 4.000 repeating captains.
1: Well, we have had a four before on one of our most recent musically inspired films, Whiplash. And then all the way back, Good company in season one on Skyfall. All right, Maddie G. What can you
0: see from the crow's nest?
3: All right, coming up on the next deep dive, Money Chris has used his golden ticket to choose the 2012 horror comedy, The Cabin in the Woods, starring Chris Hemsworth, Kristen Connolly, Richard Jenkins, and Bradley Whitford. At time of recording, it is available for rent or purchase on any of the major digital platforms. Join us as we gas up Money's RV and hit the road. Johnny Dangerous will navigate without using Google Maps or any other GPS-assisted systems. While Movie Matt rolls spliffs on the back table, (laughs) and we each take turns telling dad jokes on the CB radio as we head to a really creepy wooded area with a rundown cabin where we all party and nothing bad happens. All this and more on the next Deep Dive.
1: All right. Our time is drawing to an end. Let's close out with some of our favorite quotes.
3: Okay, Mike, you can leave if you don't want to be here. Thank you. I'm working with the cello players.
0: (laughs) Someday somebody's going to make
1: you want to turn around and say goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. This kind of behavior is so transparent. It's so sick and manipulative.
0: (laughs) It's like it was really funny that they they wrote that for the sick and manipulative characters
1: (laughs) can you make me an Arnold Palmer please what the (laughs) hell is wrong with you today (laughs) what is this well that is all for another deep dive thank you again for joining us please follow us on social media follow our podcast subscribe check out our website send us things
2: I'm going to beat this, and I'm going to beat you. <laughs> hey, this is guest host Paul. You should check out the captain's website at moviepodcast.com. And while you're at it, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Come on, you know you want to.